Hi, I'm Lily. Welcome to Story Therapy. I often feel like I'm not what people think I am. And that maybe I'm not even what I think I am. People will make offhanded comments sometimes about how or who I am. Or I'll have a random thought about how or who I am. And then I'll find myself asking, wait, is that even true? Is that still how I am? Or have I grown past that? Am I or someone else seeing some past version of me or me as I am in this moment? Is there a piece of me I've somehow kept hidden? And how much can I change while still being me? Do I want to unconsciously give up living in the moment and honoring how I'm feeling and what I'm wanting now in service of maintaining some arbitrary identity, some arbitrary me? Like a friend will say, oh, I didn't invite you to that because I knew you wouldn't like it. And like, I get why they think that. I may have said no to many things like that in the past, but now I sort of like the idea now I'm curious now it sounds like an adventure now I wish I had the opportunity to try it out or someone will invite me to do something and I'll say no on reflex like want to go on a hike and I say sounds like outside no thanks but then later I'm thinking wait I didn't ask any further questions what if they're going to see something really cool that I'd like to see Or what if they were just wanting to spend time with me and the activity was negotiable? Or what if I might like the outdoors now? I have shut myself off to the possibility for years and not even questioned it, but I haven't done everything the outdoors has to offer. Maybe I'd like some of it, which I've actually been trying some stuff lately and I do like it. Who knew? Over our lives, we're all given identities and or choose identities. Our infinite selves whittle down to something that will fit on a tongue. Mine have been, she's smart, or she's a good girl, or Lily, do you mean Lily Breeze or Big Boob Lily? My last name is not Breeze. Or I'm a reader, or I have a bachelor's in English with an emphasis in writing studies, or I'm bipolar, or I'm a vegetarian, or I don't work out, or I'm indoorsy. It's important to acknowledge that you can take on either positive or negative identity and get lost in the feeling of specialness. Because as Mark Manson says in The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, entitlement plays out in two ways. One, I'm awesome and the rest of you all suck, so I deserve special treatment. Two, I suck and the rest of you are all awesome, so I deserve special treatment. Whether you're the hero or the victim, you believe yourself to be special. And that specialness is what you're attaching to, to let yourself off the hook from actually showing up and being present and vulnerable. In thinking about this, I'm realizing identities can become limiting beliefs. Take, for example, I'm indoorsy. It's safe to say that much of the time I have not been interested in outdoor activities. True. But claiming the identity creates a barrier for me to say yes to outdoor activities I might actually enjoy because it threatens an identity. I feel pressure to be consistent and honor my chosen identity 
over my actual experience of wanting to do the thing or not. Then I can end up saying no out of a desire to be consistent rather than a lack of interest. That means people will start to believe I am the identity more and more, and I'll feel even more pressure to perform the identity rather than live in my experience. Then the opportunities to be or do something different will stop showing up because no one is asking me to do outdoor activities anymore, and I'm certainly not entertaining the thought. And then I just get more and more solidly set in the mindset until I think that's who I actually am. Basically, the identities end up leading me to create ego boundaries around myself. I do this, I don't do that. Leading me to make choices based on whether it matches that identity, rather than allowing myself to be present and make choices that serve only my soul from moment to moment. I block my own ability to be spontaneous, to surprise myself, to try new things, to challenge myself, and to grow. I make it impossible to be authentic because I have to filter my actual desires, thoughts, and feelings through the identity rather than allowing myself to just show up as my full self, contradictions and all. And I found it's easy to pick one thing people and yourself are telling you that you are and lean into it, to let it go to your head to develop a sense of superiority or inferiority around something and identify so strongly with the competency or incompetency that you begin to use it to bolster your insecurities by letting it make you feel special. And then, when you feel like you have to live up to something rather than getting to just be, I found it's easy to begin to lord that specialness, real or imagined, over people to try to smooth over your insecurities and bolster your confidence so you can feel justified in that specialness, even if it's only one small thing. For example, my dad worked for a firework company from the time I was like eight until I was about 22. And when I turned 21, I was able to do shows with him. The first time I went to help him set up a show, we found out I was weirdly fast and good at wiring the fireworks. (laughs) I could do like four rows in the time it took him to do one, and I rarely had any that didn't shoot. I rode that competency high for months. I'm naturally talented at wiring fireworks. Like, that is the weirdest and most niche flex. (laughs) But okay, Lily. And if you've done this, like I found I have, then you may find that underneath any feelings of specialness, whether on the surface or deep down, we all know our true capabilities. We know if we're hiding under all that bluster and bravado. So creating a strong display of an identity that is somehow both not big enough to allow our full selves to be expressed and too specific for us to tick every box is a double-edged sword that only ends up exacerbating our feelings of incompetence that we're trying to bolster through a strong identity in the first place, it only makes us more insecure. It only makes us feel less worthy. It only highlights for us all the ways we feel we're not enough. And then we might, consciously or subconsciously, downplay any qualities that we feel might undermine the identity that makes us feel special even if they are true and beautiful. 
This creates more insecurity and a need to over or undercompensate because we've been given and or chosen an identity that doesn't actually fit us. And yet we try to mash ourselves into it. We deny, hide, or try to change what doesn't fit and over-exaggerate our competency in what does fit our identity, creating an intense imposter syndrome fueled by a real and true lack of authenticity. We try to become our identities, then become mired in them, rather than allowing ourselves to be free by showing up as our ever-shifting selves and letting that light shine through in its wholeness, warts and all. (sighs) What I'm saying is, identity can become a cage of my own making. It can limit not only the opportunities I'm offered, but also the opportunities I allow myself to take. It can limit what I allow myself to do, what I allow myself to think, what I allow myself to feel, and how I allow myself to show up. I am, I should, I do, until I'm backed into a corner. It's like in one of my favorite books, Paper Towns by John Green. This is the moment where there will be many, many spoilers ahead, so listen at your own risk if you haven't read Paper Towns by John Green. Okay, you've been warned. In this novel, the main character, Q, is a well-behaved, well-adjusted, and fairly anxious high school senior who's been in love with his neighbor, Margot Roth Spiegelman, since they were small children, though they haven't hung out much in the last few years. Margot is mysterious, spontaneous, wild, interesting, fun, and brave, and Q watches her from a distance, thinking he knows her through her enigmatic persona. One night, Margot shows up at Q's window and takes him on a wild adventure to punish everyone involved with her boyfriend cheating on her with one of her friends, as well as some other mayhem. And then the next day, she's gone. Margot does that sometimes, disappears, but she usually leaves clues for her family when she disappears, so when she's not back after a few days and it's clear her parents aren't looking, Q starts looking for her. He follows her clues and is taken on another wild adventure, but this time alone and thinking he might find a dead Margot at the end due to a few suicidal-sounding quotes mixed into the messages and an experience they shared as children of finding a dead body together. Along that journey, Q comes to know Margot in a completely different way. She wasn't just the popular, mysterious, adventurous girl. She also loved to sneak away and hide in an abandoned strip mall called the Osprey, where she would sit quiet and alone for hours. She was also the girl obsessed with music, who had hundreds of records on the walls of her bedroom, but no one knew. And she was also the girl who felt unseen and and pessimistic about the world until she adopted philosophical thoughts about life and reality itself, which made a normal life feel untenable for her. Through all this, Q comes to realize that there was a version of Margot in his head that was not Margot as she was, and that her friend Lacey had a version, and Margot's parents had a version, and Margot's sister had a version, and the people she found the Osprey with had a version, but no one had the real Margot, the whole of Margot, Maybe not even Margot herself. Maybe you can never really know all of someone, even yourself, because they are always changing and there is always more potential. Q 
found that he could not truly understand everything that made Margot Margot. And the same was true in reverse. Margot had a version of Q in her head, a scared, unadventurous, boring boy who would live his quiet life. But she shows up at his window, and he goes on an adventure with her. He hyperventilates his way through it, but he also laughs his way through it. And he's brave and strong and willing to take chances. And she's surprised by him. So she leaves him more adventures because she wants to share some of her beloved secrets with him. She doesn't intend to leave clues to be found by anyone, but she underestimates Q's tenacity. And he doesn't give up. He finds her far away from home anyway. And when they meet again, they find that they can see each other more clearly than ever. And yet, they still can't see it all. They'll never see all of each other. They discover you can never fully know someone. There will always be more. One of my favorite lines from this book is from the part when they meet again. Q sees Margot and then has a moment of realization. He realizes that the idea of her in his head is not only wrong, but dangerous. And then he says, what a treacherous thing to believe that a person is more than a person. This line encapsulates this version of identity I'm thinking through. And I'm thinking if you feel like you can sum up who a person is in a few words, then it's almost certain you have made them more or less than a person because people are messy and complicated and ever-changing. You can never fully know them. In Margot's case, Q thought of her as a beautiful mystery. And in Q's case, Margot thought of him as a scared goody-goody. They were both as wrong as they were right, because they are both those things, and they are so much more. But the identities got lodged between them until they couldn't see each other at all. Q has Margot on a pedestal, thinking she's more than a person, more than human, more interesting and worldly than anyone else, above the petty problems of mere humans, which makes him unable to see her pain, unable to see her fear, unable to see her faults, and simply unable to really see her in her fullness. And Margot has Q in almost a lesser category. She sees him as a victim of society, tragically normal. She sees him as a small-minded person, just going with the flow of life that has been set out for him. Which makes her underestimate him, unable to see his potential for bravery and adventure, and makes her unable to see the value of being a solid, steady person who is settled into who and what he wants to be, which makes her unable to see him in his fullness. I like to say the quote as, What a treacherous thing to believe that a person is more or less than a person. Because either way, more or less, the person is being stripped, in your eyes, of the inherent right to either fail or succeed, to be witnessed in that failure or success, and then continue being loved as a human being of both great beauty and great ugliness. Because when a person has something to live up or down to, They don't get to show up as exactly who they are without disappointing you or without you misinterpreting their actions and deciding it means something about how they're measuring up. Real love can't live in that environment. 
Real love doesn't demand. It accepts. And every person has the inherent right to be seen as human, as flawed and magic, as ugliness and delight, as truth and lies, as light and dark. Because over our life, we are all of these things and more. And the most dangerous part is not when someone else labels us something and cannot see us or love us in our fullness. The most dangerous part is when we start to believe ourselves to be more or less than human and decide to cultivate ourselves into that image. Before Margot leaves Orlando, that's what she had done. She had kept most of herself hidden from the people in her life and not allowed her full self enough room to breathe and develop, only showing herself in flashes and creating an air of mystery and otherworldliness in that. But that image also made her feel small, flimsy, and breakable. A paper girl. Not flesh and bone and sinew. It made her imagine herself as something that could be irreparably broken. When Margot and Q found the dead body together as kids, Margot said, I think all the strings inside him broke. And when she takes Q on the adventure the night before she leaves Orlando, she says the situation with her boyfriend and her friend cut the rest of her strings. This is partly why Q thinks she might be dead for a while. But when they meet again, Q gives this speech about metaphors, which I've always loved. In it, he talks about how metaphors have implications because different symbols have different journeys and natural conclusions. And once you imagine yourself into the symbol, you're taking on its journey. He says he likes the strings because that's how it feels, but the strings make pain seem more fatal than it is. And he likes Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass because it helps you imagine an experience outside of yourself and see others a little better. But you can imagine another well, but never quite perfectly. And he proposes another metaphor of a vessel which starts out watertight and whole. But then he says, people leave us or don't love us or don't get us or we don't get them and we lose and fail and hurt one another. And the vessel starts to crack open in places. And I mean, yeah, once the vessel starts to crack open, the end becomes inevitable. But there's all this time between when the cracks open up and when we finally fall apart. And it's only in that time that we can see one another because we see out of ourselves through our cracks and into others through theirs. When did we first start to see each other face to face, he asks Margot. Not until you saw into my cracks and I saw into yours. Before that, we were just looking at ideas of each other. But once the vessel cracks, the light can get in, the light can get out. I love that part, it's just so beautifully written. <laughs> And it makes me think, if we hide our wholeness to try to fit a mold, what do we come to believe about our hidden parts? What feelings do we allow to grow in the shadows? Shame, fear, anxiety? What do we come to believe about our pain, our ugly parts, our struggles? What do we come to believe about connection? Is it conditional? 
Do we start to believe acceptance and love and connection are only ours if we earn it through proving some identity and showing up perfectly? Which means rejecting pieces of ourselves, both good and bad. Do we we come to believe our full, real, and true selves are not enough? Are we pre-rejecting ourselves as some form of protection? Does that actually work? Or does it only make it feel more true and cut deeper when someone else rejects us? God, this makes me so sad for Margot and so sad for myself. I've always known I saw myself in her, but had a hard time pinpointing why. And I think this is it. Being myself is not a light task for me. It feels heavy and scary and wrought with shame and self-doubt. I'm realizing right now that I'm afraid I won't be accepted because I've already not accepted myself. I feel worried that my full self is way too much. (sighs) I've had this word running through my head for most of my life, but I've noticed it cropping up again in the last few weeks. Crazy. I had kind of thought I'd conquered it, but here it is again. That's the word I've used to invalidate my feelings, to tamp myself down, to keep myself as a 2D paper girl, to suppress my full self, to keep that vulnerable center, that light trying to leak out and connect with people through my cracks on the inside. You're too much. Don't act crazy. Keep it in, I tell myself. But is that true? Or am I the exact right amount for the people who are meant to be in my life? Could my allotness, which is real, have something to add to the lives of the people who have and will come to love me? Could my intensity, neuroticism, and enthusiasm be gifts in the right context and with the right attitude? Could my hurt parts, my damaged parts, my hero's journey, my slayed dragons, my ugly bits, which I've learned to hold with tenderness, be something someone could love about me. I'm realizing I've been seeing myself as both more and less than human. I've been leaning into my intellect and ideas and words and leaning away from my heart, my romanticism, my gooey soft center. I've whittled myself down to a brain, a mind, and not allowed my whole human experience my emotions, my heart, my body, my soul, a seat at the table, or a turn at the wheel, whichever metaphor you prefer, to be expressed. I feel competent in my mind. I feel pretty terrified in the rest of those areas. Those pieces of me feel very insecure and lonely because I've been rejecting and shaming them rather than embracing them like I have the darkness. But I know the only way to gain competency and find actual confidence in the whole human experience, in my feelings, my body, my laughter, my trust, is to admit that I feel scared in them, and then welcome them out into the light and learn to carry them with gentleness, to care for them with tenderness, to show them and trust that they will be loved and accepted, and most of all, to love them wholly as I have come to love my mind and my ideas. 
There's this quote from This Is Not the End of the World, a poem by Neil Hilborn, that gives me strength when I start calling myself crazy and try to gaslight myself out of my own feelings. He says, Whatever you're feeling right now, there is a mathematical certainty that someone else has felt the exact same thing. That isn't to say you aren't special. That's to say, thank God you aren't special. I find this infinitely comforting. Because truly, thank God I'm not special. Thank God there's a mathematical certainty someone else has felt what I'm feeling in every moment. Thank God I am holy and wonderfully human. Thank God there is a possibility for other humans to know me, to see me. Thank God I'm a vessel with cracks who can shine my light and see others' light. Thank God I have the capacity to change. So now I'm asking myself, what's the remedy to letting identity squash our ability to fully express ourselves? To hiding and shaming parts of ourselves in favor of an identity that lets us feel that we're special? How do we release the desire for specialness and instead, thank God we aren't special? How do we stop putting ourselves in boxes with identity? How do we show up authentically? How do we show up in our fullness? How do we learn to let our light shine through our cracks and into others? How do we learn to let our light shine through our cracks and into others? And how do we receive the light others offer us? How do we remember and remain fully, imperfectly, and beautifully human? What could be possible if we could hold ourselves and each other as nothing more or less than human? As a remedy to identity and specialness, which lead to shame and hiding, I propose humility, a modest or low view of one's own importance, humbleness. I would add to this definition that humility is internal. No one who ever humbled someone was acting with humility. The universe can humble you, circumstances can humble you, life can humble you, and you can feel humbled by others in their grace or compassion or wisdom. But I think the business of humbling others is the least humble thing imaginable, and I'm not here for it. <laughs> Choose the internal act of humility for yourself and let life teach others humility in their own time if that's their journey. Mind your business. <laughs> I wasn't consciously aware at first of what I was doing, but over the last couple of years, I've been practicing some humility, and I've been surprised by how powerful it's been. Releasing me from identity and shame, freeing me to be more of myself than ever, and helping me trust that she is good. I met up with an old friend, Austin, who I've known since late elementary school, like fifth or sixth grade, a while back. We had randomly suggested books to each other via an Instagram post and decided to do a two-person book club of sorts. So I went to his house for dinner, met his girlfriend, and we were catching up and chatting about the books we read, what stood out to us most, and what we wanted to take with us from them. Then, at some point, he started describing who I was as when we were kids to his girlfriend. And I was surprised because he said something like, This girl was a straight-A student, the smartest in the class, always reading. And I just laughed. I was always reading, but I wasn't a straight-A student. I was a solid B student, sometimes not even that. 
In classes with subjects I hated or teachers I couldn't stand, I was lucky to skate by with a D. He looked so surprised. And yeah, I mean, I'm smart. I I know my brain works in an interesting, unique, deep, and wide-reaching way. I'm completely obsessed with stories. I'm excellent with words. I'm a curious person. So I know a little bit about a lot of stuff. And I'm an amazing Googler. (laughs) And I'm pretty capable. So I can figure things out. If I was an AI, my basic directive would be to deeply understand things that pique my interest and make connections. I excel at those two things. But I was not an excellent student. Not in elementary school, not in middle school, definitely not in high school, and not in college, community college, or university. I am terrible at feigning interest in or even just going through the motions with something I don't care about. I am terrible at being disciplined when it comes to learning things that I don't care about. I am stubborn and defiant if someone I don't like or respect is trying to teach me anything. So within the education system where you have to learn a lot of things you do not care about from people you do not care for, I did not thrive. In certain classes, I would have had an A++ if that was possible. I did every single assignment fully, plus extra credit. I read every single thing assigned and often read ahead or reread, and I would come up with my own extra challenges or ask for more assignments or book recommendations because I just wanted to learn more, more, more from someone I liked and respected. See most English history or science classes during K through 12, both of my literary theory classes in college, my web design class, my document design class, and my comic books and superheroes class. But in other classes, I would daydream or straight up sleep through class every day. I would figure out the exact amount of assignments I absolutely had to do to get a passing grade and do no more than that exact amount. I would barely ever do the readings or participate in a meaningful way. And if I really didn't like the teacher, (laughs) I would specifically do things to annoy them or derail the class. See any math class ever, my rhetorical theory class in college, and many other classes I wisely learned to drop during the first week in college and just take something else or from someone else. So yes, I confirmed to Austin. I was really close at one point to not graduating from high school. I had failed so many classes and had such a shit attendance record that I had to go to Valley High School in order to finish. I ended up graduating a year early, but if I had had to stick with a regular school with more requirements for graduating and a normal schedule, I probably wouldn't have a high school diploma. I would have had to get a GED. So that was one bubble burst with one person. One act of humility, one moment of authenticity, admitting it was scary, but also freeing because I could be authentic and true to myself and he didn't reject me or think I was stupid. He knew I wasn't. He could just see me more clearly and that felt amazing. Another thing to know about me is I am not a strong reader. I am slow and I often struggle with comprehension. When someone reads over my shoulder, they are always done long before me. And I often get distracted when I'm trying to read things and have to reread multiple times to understand and follow. But even then, I'll sometimes miss something major and have to retrace my steps to find what I missed. That's why I transitioned from reading physical books, which was always a struggle and took me forever, to listening to audiobooks. 
which are easier for me to comprehend and way faster since I often listen at 1.25 speed. I have a much easier time taking in the information and stories through audio, and it helps me concentrate if I can occupy my body with one task and let my mind roam free in my book. But I had never admitted out, out loud to anyone until I was like 25 that I wasn't a strong reader. By then, I had been mainly listening to audiobooks for more than four years. When I did finally admit that I wasn't a strong reader to two of my best friends, Jesse and Lindsay, I cried, <laughs> and they were so surprised. It was so hard for me to admit, because being a reader has been a part of my identity for a long time. So that was a second bubble burst, a second act of humility. And again, they didn't think I was dumb or slow or that there was something wrong with me, all of my fears. Instead, they admired my tenacity, because even as a slow reader who struggled a lot, I had been managing to read dozens of books every year for more than a decade. And for more than six years of that, I didn't listen to any audiobooks. I loved stories so much that I fought through the struggle, and I had never even thought of it like that. It's amazing how when you truly show yourself, people can often come to see what you think of as weaknesses, as signs of strength instead. I know when I was younger, I probably did let people believe I was a better student. And I definitely let people believe I was a stronger reader than I was. I was well-spoken, intelligent, and always had my nose in a book. So people made assumptions, and I didn't correct them. Or maybe that's not exactly right. Maybe I sort of reframed what I thought those meant so I felt I could claim them, and I didn't need to correct people. But deep down, I knew. I recognize now that what I did then was inauthentic, but at the time, it felt like maintaining that identity was survival. And I liked feeling like I had some kind of edge, some kind of positive identifier that I was known for. And I liked feeling special, and maybe even a little superior to others, if only in this one way. And I liked that feeling, not because I actually felt superior to others, but because in most ways, I've always felt incompetent and overwhelmed. When it comes to socializing, making friends, saying the right things, following humor and teasing, being funny, attracting a partner, being a partner, attracting friends, being a friend, having emotional conversations, supporting someone in a hard time, and surrendering to joy when it comes, I feel like a complete fool. I also feel this way when it comes to dealing with the physical and practical aspects of life, like feeding myself, sleeping, showering, drinking water, exercising, expressing physical affection, being present enough in the world to not be clumsy or forget to take care of my physical needs, and in grounding myself into my body and experiencing the world in the current moment. And though I'm making progress, all of those normal ass things are kind of difficult for me. They take a lot of focus and attention to even notice the needs and then attend to them. And when I think about it, these are the aspects of the education system that made it untenable for me, the social aspects of the professor-student dynamic and the practical aspect of committing time to something that was just ticking a box in the world but didn't actually engage my mind. The mental and intellectual aspects of life and education are joyous and easeful for me. I love studying something I enjoy in depth and with wonder. I love engaging with interesting ideas and theorizing how that could work in practice. I love being in my mind. 
It's the only place in the world I feel completely in control and competent. I don't question my intellect, my ability to come up with weird but interesting thoughts, my ability to entertain myself, my ability to create webs of connected ideas and formulate theories about those connections. So maybe I have leaned into letting people believe that my intellectual competence bled over a little more into the practical world than it actually does. Maybe I wanted to believe it did too. There's this personality test called the Enneagram that I really like, which has given me the language to understand this part of my personality. For the Enneagram, you take a quiz and are given a type between one and nine. Each type has an archetype of sorts. Then you can do more research and dive into as much depth as you like. I'm a type five, the investigator, with a six wing, which makes me the subtype, the problem solver. According to the Enneagram Institute, type five's basic fear is being useless, helpless, or incapable. And their basic desire is to be capable and competent. Their identity is built around having ideas and being someone with something insightful or interesting to say. Their key motivations are to possess knowledge, understand the environment, and have everything figured out as a way of defending the self from threats in the environment. So behind their relentless pursuit of knowledge is a deep insecurity about their ability to function successfully in the world. They have a tendency toward nihilism and will often isolate and give up on practical matters like physical needs and emotional relationships for long periods when they start to feel useless, helpless, or incompetent, retreating into their safe space, which is their mind, overthinking, overanalyzing, and overplanning. Thinking if they can first get life, relationships, or physical matters figured out within their own mind, they can someday rejoin the world with competence and confidence, not realizing that What would truly get them there is simply showing up in the world, making mistakes, learning as they go, and continuing to show up. So I think what I've done in the past is a classic type five move. Lean into where I already feel competent and like an expert, being in my own mind. Then retreat into that space and isolate from everything that makes me feel incompetent, anxious, and afraid, which is everything other than my mind. (laughs) observing the world and my body from a distance and thinking that if I can spend enough time studying from a safe distance, I'll be able to crack that code and rejoin the world with strategies and beliefs that will give me complete confidence. But that's pure and simple hubris. It's cowardice and it's folly. Still, I struggle against the idea that life, relationships, feelings, experiences are something that can be figured out and plan for and mapped in. Still, I overanalyze and try to control and cultivate. I still get caught up sometimes in ways of thinking that are rigid and flexible, easily annoyed by variation, surprises, and other regular human things, like I'm a freaking robot or something. Then I can end up beating myself up about it and catastrophizing. I'm never going to get this peopling thing down or I'm the worst at being a human in history. Then I get into overthinking on how to fix it, but I am getting better. I I try to take a deep breath and find my humility. Because humility is also allowing yourself to take an honest accounting of who you are, how you want to show up in the world, and what you think and feel. 
your strengths and faults, your fears and hopes, your traumas and triggers, your joys and gifts, and your ability to be open to discovery. Then you can bring that self-awareness into the world with you and act from a place of equality with everyone and everything around you. Your thoughts and feelings are not any more or less important or real than anyone else's. Your interpretation of reality is not more or less important or real than anyone else's. And your insights into humanness are not more or less important or real than anyone else's. Having humility cultivates trust in yourself and your relationships because you will never dismiss yourself or others if you see everyone on equal footing as human beings. No more treachery of holding someone as an idea. No more judging. No more hierarchy of experience. Just looking through the cracks and seeing light. Humility is also recognizing and accepting that you won't be for everyone. Other people are allowed to like you or not like you. They're allowed to want you or reject you. And they're allowed to trust you or not trust you. That doesn't necessarily mean anything about you as a soul. And it doesn't mean you don't have the right to fully express your humanness. You don't need to adapt to make people like you. You don't need anyone's permission to be your human self. But humility can give you self-compassion in those moments of showing yourself to accept whatever comes, to accept others' truths, even when they aren't your own. It can deepen your relationships by teaching you to show yourself to the people around you and to see them more clearly in turn. And by learning to show yourself, you will come to know that the people who choose you know who you actually are. They choose the real and ever-changing you in each moment and they love the absolute truth of you. Humility can help free you from insecurity and self-doubt. It can allow you to try new things, to try on new ideas and personalities, to contradict yourself, to change your mind, to fail, to be imperfect, and to trust that through all that, you are still whole, humble, and infinite. You are always becoming more of yourself, and that's not just okay. It's beautiful. It's a miracle. Ultimately, humility for me is about bringing yourself back to center. What a treacherous thing to believe that is a person is more or less than a person. It's saying to yourself, I am not special. I am not the worst and I am not the best. I am not a victim or a hero. I'm not the smartest person in the room and I'm not the worst at feelings. I'm not crazy and I'm not a robot. I am a human being, just like everyone else. There is a mathematical certainty that someone else has felt this exact same thing. I am on a journey of self-discovery and growth and learning, just like everyone else. I have wisdom and blind spots, just like everyone else. I am a messy ball of emotions, just like everyone else. I can be strong and weak. I can be wise and an idiot. I can be trusting and pessimistic. I can be funny and serious. I can be vulnerable and closed off. I can be every human emotion and experience because I am every bit as human as everyone else. Nothing is off limits or shameful or not okay. Even shame. It's all available to me and it all belongs to me. 
I am fully human. I get to be open to the learning process and keep growing, keep becoming. <laughs>